Our scripture passage this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 20. When you find it, stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 18, 1 through 20. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them, and said, Surely I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that the stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this body. We thank you for... Lord, the privilege to worship you. I pray that as Chris comes up to uh, teach this word, Lord, I pray that it would go out with the Spirit, that hearts would be encouraged, Father, that we would be excited to worship you, to follow you, and to glorify your name in our lives, Lord. Amen. Well, we're back in Matthew this morning. Uh, we last time we were in Matthew was December 18th, and then we had Christmas, which got canceled for church. And then last week we talked about uh, Philippians 2 and the Christmas and the New Year's idea from then. But we are back in Matthew 18. But it's been a couple weeks, so let me give you a couple bits of review. Remember that Matthew is the go- uh, the, the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, Jesus it tells about what is the nature of the kingdom. It tells about Jesus as the king, and it tells um, his followers how to live while they wait for the establishment of his 
kingdom. And we've been walking through Matthew, and one of the key facets about Matthew is that it has these five main teaching sections by Jesus. We call them discourses. There are times when Jesus takes his disciples aside and he gives them instruction. And that instruction is not only for the original disciples, but for all disciples who would follow Jesus. Matthew 18 is the fourth of of the five discourses. And this this discourse is about Um, It is about the community. It is about Jesus' community of disciples. You see, he's been preaching to Israel, repent for the kingdom of the heavens has drawn near. He's been preaching that. Israel has rejected him by and large, not only those who are actively opposed like the scribes and the Pharisees, but also um, the apathy of the crowds who have heard him. And so what does Jesus promise in Matthew 16? He says, uh, I'm going to build my assembly, not the Old Testament assembly of Israel, but now a new assembly, the new covenant assembly, which is going to be built up of Jesus' disciples. And in Matthew 18, we talk, uh, it talks a lot about the ethics of that community. What is that community going to be like? And really, Matthew 18 is formed around two questions, two questions by the disciples. The first question is in Matthew 18, 1, uh, where the disciples come to Jesus and ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then also the second question is in Matthew 18, 21, uh, where Peter asks a question about forgiving sins of a fellow disciple. And so those are the two main questions that really structure a lot of this chapter. And so really from 18, 1 through 18, 20, is all mushed together. It all flows together. The ideas are tightly interconnected as we walk through that. And I'll just remind you of those ideas briefly. In Matthew 18, 1 through 4, in answer to the disciples' question about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus takes this child and he puts him in the midst and says, unless you turn and become like children, uh, dependent, not seeking your own honor, which is what the question, who's the greatest, presupposes. You're seeking your own honor. And unless you turn and are not seeking your own honor, but are dependent and seeking the honor of the Father, you're not going to even enter. But if you do become like one of those children, you're going to be the greatest. And that's the mentality that every disciple ought to have. And then Jesus transitions in 18, 5 through 7, and he says, the father values uh, little ones like this. And he's using this metaphor of children. Uh, He's using this metaphor of children to talk about a regular, normal disciple. Because every disciple has to become like a child in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so he's still talking about disciples in uh, 18, 5 through 7, and he starts talking about how much the Father values such disciples. If you receive such a disciple, you receive me. But if you don't, if you instead ensnare a disciple, ensnare them in sin, well, you're going to have God to answer to in eternity because of how much he values those disciples. And then he switches gears, Jesus switches gears in verses 8 through 9 and talks further about ensnarement into sin. And he talks to disciples individually and says, watch out for yourselves. Watch out that you don't become ensnared into sin. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Because why? Because in that first section, it is very clear that heaven and hell are at stake. Heaven and hell are at stake. 
There are many snares in the world, many stumbling blocks, but you have to avoid them as a disciple, and then as a fellow disciple, you have to make sure that you're not ensnaring a fellow disciple because God values his little ones, his disciples, the disciples of Jesus, so much. And then that led us into verses 10 through 14, which is where we left off last time. And really, really, this whole, like I said, this whole section from verse 1 to verse 20 is really one section where Jesus is just flowing one idea right into another. But especially verses 10 through 20, especially verses 10 through 20 are lumped together and they form uh, two sides of the same coin. And so I gave one main idea for ver- uh, 10 through 20, and that's the main idea that is presented in your bulletin there. And I said this before, we're coming back to this passage, so I'll reiterate it. And here's the main idea for 10 through 20, even though we've already covered 10 through 14. The main idea of 10 through 20 is this. You must not despise straying disciples, but seek their repentance through the means of individual and assembly correction. And verses 10 through 14 deal with that idea of seeking, not despising straying disciples. Jesus tells the parable of a man who, who, uh, who owns a hundred sheep, and then one of these sheep goes astray. Uh, and, it, uh, and what Jesus is using with this metaphor, this little mini parable, is he's using it to illustrate the father. The father is the owner of the sheep in the parable. It makes it clear after Jesus applies it. And one sheep goes astray, and he's using that as a metaphor for someone falling into sin, for wandering from the community of faith. And Jesus says the father values even a straying but real disciple so much, he invests resources in capturing that one, that individual, to bring them back to himself and to the other 99. And by implication, Jesus is saying, you're to have the same heart. You're to have the same heart. You're not to despise Uh, fellow disciples, even if they're straying, but what are you supposed to do? If you want to follow the Father's heart, you go after them. You go after them, and you invest and seek them. And, uh, And so really what verses 10 through 14 are all about is if the Father has that heart for an individual disciple, so ought the disciples of Jesus have that same heart. But the question is this. After you leave verses 10 through 14, the question is this. How do you seek? How do you go after that one who has gone astray? And the reality is, is that verses 15 through 20 answer that question. Verses 15 through 20 answer that question. Now that's interesting and very important to recognize because verses 15 through 20 are what are, uh, we go to when we talk about church discipline. This is the passage, Uh, there's other passages in the scriptures that talk about church discipline and how you do it, but this is the go-to passage for church discipline. But what you need to recognize, even as we enter this passage and walk through it, it is set in the context of how much the Father loves individual disciples. And because of that love, he goes after that individual disciple. How do you do that? You do that through church discipline. So church discipline, and what we're going to talk about with regard to church discipline, is an expression of love. And you need to understand that. Because if you just walk through the actions of church discipline and you don't see the heart behind it, which is really the heart of the Father seeking a straying disciple, you're going to think that church discipline sounds harsh and unfair 
and is especially uh, taboo in our culture, which doesn't, likes tolerance, doesn't want to reject anyone. But if you understand that it is God's love that drives this, God's love of seeking, seeking repentance, seeking a straying sheep, then you're going to understand church discipline and the heart behind it. And so there's two parts to this. The main idea of verses 15 through 20 is correct sin in the assembly for the sake of repentance. Correct sin in the assembly, by which we mean the church, for the sake of repentance. But you can break that down even further into two parts. Correct with the right process in verses 15 through 17. And then in verses 18 through 20, correct with the delegated authority of heaven. So there's two parts in verses 15 through 17. Now, I thought, if you know me uh, any at all, or you've come to know me at all, I thought I could get through 15 through 20, no problem. And then I did my dry run with Ashley like I do every week, and I only got through verses uh, 17. So we're going to have uh, keep extending this, but the Lord knows, uh, so we're going to go through only verses 15 through 17 today. We need to get this. This passage is important for us. One, so that we don't abuse it, but two, so that we do understand it and practice it. This is only the only the, the, the second of two passages in Matthew where the church is mentioned. The other passage is in Matthew 16, and this is the second in Matthew 18. In fact, there's a lot of similarities between these two passages, and I'll try to draw those connections as we walk through them, but this is essential for church life. So let's walk through the text. Let's talk through the idea of how to correct with the right process. Look at verse 15. If your brother sins. Now, I'm going to pause right there because depending on which version you are reading, you will read one of two things. In the ESV, which is what I'm using right here, it reads, if your brother sins against you. If you're reading the NASB or something like it, it will read this, if your brother sins. Do you see the difference between those two? A little prepositional phrase, against you, is in one, and against, uh, it's, it's in the ESV, and, um, and it's not in others, like the NASB. What is going on? Okay, quick, quick lesson. We, uh, I, told, I mentioned this to you guys a couple weeks ago. Uh, what we have... Uh, of the New Testament manuscripts, they're written in Greek. There's hundreds of these manuscripts from um, an early time period and thousands over across multiple centuries. So God has blessed us in his providence with a, a plentitude of these manuscripts. And what we can do is we can compare and contrast them. We can wait, well, which one's earlier, which one's better, which one seems better copied. And we can weigh which readings are the best to understand what was the original reading when Matthew penned this. So we have one of those issues here where it's a tight call. Um, early, the earlier and I think better manuscripts ha ha don't have the prepositional phrase. They just read, if your brother sins, period. Uh, later manuscripts, in fact, the vast majority of manuscripts read the prepositional phrase against you. Now, uh, why does it matter? Well, if you take the phrase against you, then what this is, is instructions on if you have interpersonal conflict within the church uh, when someone sins directly against you. If you remove that prepositional phrase, then what it means is if your brother sins. Not necessarily against you, it could be just broader in application. So it matters which one we land on. 
Like I said, I think the shorter reading is better because of the manuscripts that have it. So we're going to land and we're going to go with if your brother sins. If you want uh, me to talk to you more about that and why I think that's the better reading, we can do that after. But for the purposes of where we're going, I think the better reading, reading, the original reading, is if your brother sins. Now, now that we've landed on that, first, note, it's a brother. What does he mean by a brother? It's someone who is part of the family of disciples. In other words, this is a fellow believer that you see, that by all outward appearances, by profession, this is a, someone who is claiming to be a follower of Jesus. Second thing that you need to notice is from verses 15 to 17, all the yous are singular, not plural. Now, that's going to be interesting and important for how this plays out. So, when Jesus is talking about this scenario, he's talking about if you, like singular you, if your brother sins, your brother sins, if a fellow disciple, brother or sister, sins, and that maintains throughout all of this, the focus and the focal point, the person who's being addressed from verses 15 through 17 is an individual disciple. And that's going to be important to consider as we walk through this. Next, what do we see? He says, if your brother sins, that's pretty open-ended. Doesn't specify exactly what kind of sin we're talking about. It just said, Jesus just says, if your brother sins. Since we've left off that prepositional phrase, we don't think it's part of the original reading, then it's wide open. It's not just if someone sins against you, that, that would be included, but if you see someone sin, then there's a procedure, there's a process for you to follow that Jesus outlines for his people. And given the context of Matthew 18, what has Jesus been talking about? He's been talking about if you're ensnared into sin, either by yourself or someone else. And the context is heaven and hell are at stake. So this is a serious matter. Could be a very serious sin, could on the surface be a very uh, seemingly innocent sin, but the backdrop to this is sin through which heaven and hell are at stake. And we'll see more about uh, what the qualities of the sin might be as we walk through it. So you see your brother's sin. You as an individual disciple, an individual follower of Jesus, as part of the community, see your brother's sin. What do you do? First, go. It says go. It's a command. Go. Don't sit back. Don't wait. Don't sweep it under the rug. Don't say, "Ah, I don't want to get involved. That's too much hassle. Go and do what? Go and tell him his fault. Now, this word is very interesting. Um, uh, ESV translates it, tell him his fault. Uh, Maybe your translation reads something like correction or rebuke. Here's the idea of this word. It had legal overtones. And in fact, the whole section had legal overtones. The idea of this word is um, that you go... Uh, and you lay out a case to, as, we'll, as he starts off with, Jesus says, if he, um, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. So this is a one-on-one conference. 
This is a one-on-one conference. And the idea is that the individual disciple lays out a case for proving that this brother sinned. So that kind of limits uh, our understanding of what Jesus is talking about. It's not just like, well, I think maybe that person sinned, or I think that person has a sinful attitude. No, Jesus has in mind, you saw something, and you're able to prove from the situation, from the, what happened, and from the scriptures, this was sin. And you lay out that case before that individual brother, and for the purpose of saying, I'm proving to you that you sinned, and you're trying to bring the brother or sister to conviction. For what purpose? Well, look at what Jesus says. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So the picture is, you go, you, you see a sin, something that you can prove, or at least you think you can. This is sin, uh, and I'm going to go, I'm going to confront this fellow brother or sister. I'm going to lay out the case for, uh, I saw this, I saw you do this, brother or sister, that is wrong, I can prove it to you from the scriptures that that is wrong, and you need to repent. And what's the motivation? The motivation is what is encapsulated in that, li- that second if-then statement, if he listens to you. In other words, you're doing this with the, the, the brother who's uh, confronting the sinning brother, is go, uh, going to him and seeking to persuade him And to listen, not just, okay, yeah, I hear the case, but to be convicted such that he repents and obeys and corrects course. To use the analogy of the straying sheep in 10 through 14, the brother goes to a straying sheep, says, brother, you are straying, you need to repent and you need to come back. You need to repent and follow Jesus, follow the Father That's what he means by if he listens to you. And the motivation is gaining your brother. That is the motivation of this. The motivation is love. The motivation is seeking a straying sheep that the father loves and the disciple knows that. And the motivation is not vengeance. It's not pride. It's not arrogance. It's not seeking to puff oneself up. It is out of love going on a rescue mission for a straying sheep to gain the brother. And what you have to understand is this is the only time Jesus is going to say that as he works through this process. But you have to understand that at each stage, at every stage, that is always operating in the background. That if repentance occurs, and that is the goal of restoration of repentance to bring them back to following Jesus and to being part of the community. That is what is driving, that is the heart that is driving this text. So that's stage one, individual, one-on-one conference. Now, this is not a new idea in the Bible. Uh, This is not uh, just some out of the blue, Jesus is making up rules. This is actually has grounding in the Old Testament, which is not surprising because that's what most of what Matthew and Jesus, they always go back to the Old Testament. So go back to Leviticus. Go back to Leviticus. I'm sure you've spent a lot of time in Leviticus lately. What is Leviticus all about? God is giving his um, law, his instruction to the people at Mount Sinai, 
And Leviticus is in connection with the booting up, the starting of the tabernacle system. And the big question that governs Leviticus is how can a sinful people dwell with a holy God? And so uh, the first part of the book is really about the, the, the way you draw near to God is through sacrifice. And that brings us through basically chapter 16. By the time you uh, uh, go to the second half of the book, say from 17 on, it's more about, okay, if you're drawing near to God as his people, as a community, if you're drawing near to God and his presence, which was manifested in the tabernacle and later the temple, uh, how do you act? How do you act? How do you live? And a good portion of that is in Leviticus 19. And uh, you hear the refrain, you shall do this or that because I am holy, because I'm God. This is, if you're in connection with me, this is how you live. And what I want to draw your attention to is verses 15 through 18, which will sound very similar to what Jesus is saying in Matthew. Verse 15, you shall do no injustice in courts. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Now, wait a minute. Uh, uh, Leviticus is talking about judging your neighbor. I thought we weren't supposed to judge. I mean, Jesus says in Matthew 7, judge not that you be not judged. Well, if you look at Matthew 7, what Jesus is talking about is the kind of judgment where you seek to elevate yourself over another person by condemning them. Yeah, you're not supposed to do that sort of judgment, but you are supposed to discern and keep a lookout for sin in the community and for your neighbor. And that's what's going on here in Leviticus. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. Now catch this, verses 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly, or maybe your translation reads something like correct or rebuke, something like that. It's, uh, in the Greek Old Testament, the translation of the Hebrew, it reads the same word that Jesus is using in Matthew 18, the idea of you lay out a case, you correct them, uh, you convict them. Uh, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, you shall correct them, you shall rebuke them, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. In connection with the second greatest commandment, that is the second greatest commandment right there, Jesus is talking about, you don't hate your brother in your heart, you see him doing something, you see him doing something wrong, um, God says, you go after them and you confront them lest you also become guilty. Because if you don't confront them, you're going to become guilty too. But why do you do it? Out of love. Loving your neighbor as yourself. It's the same mentality that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 18. You go. You go and confront. You go and rebuke. You lay out the case, you convict them for the purpose of gaining your brother or sister. That's the goal. But what if it doesn't happen? Verse 16. So Jesus is presented, here's what you want. You want to gain your brother. That's what you want to do. But, verse 16, alternative. If he does not listen. And the idea is that, uh, yeah, I mean, he may hear your case, 
but he's not convicted and he's not repenting. He's not listening. That's the idea of listening here. It's not just, okay, I heard it, but that it moves someone to action. Okay, he's heard it, but he's not moved to action. He's not moved to repentance. What do you do? And Jesus says, if he does not listen, take along with you. So again, it's still oriented towards that individual disciple. We'll call that individual disciple that initiated this whole process, we'll call him the prosecuting disciple. So you've got a prosecuting disciple. Uh, He's seen sin. He's called his brother to repentance one-on-one. If he does not listen, take along with you another one or two. Why? In order that on the mouth of two witnesses or of three, every charge or every matter might be established. Okay, so Jesus lays out this, sec- this procedure of, okay, he doesn't listen, what do you do? And what, he, uh, what Jesus specifies that you do, again, has its roots in the Old Testament. Turn to Deuteronomy. So here, again, we have the context of God speaking to Israel before they go into the promised land. You can turn to Deuteronomy um, 17. And uh, he's speaking to the community, the community where God is dwelling. It's God's people. And he's giving different laws of, okay, how are you supposed to act? How are you supposed to live? And in Deuteronomy 17, verse 2, we read a similar sort of situation. It's got its differences for sure. But we see some contact with what is being said here in Deuteronomy and what Jesus is saying in Matthew. And we'll look at Deuteronomy 19 as well, so just be ready to flip the page. Deuteronomy 17, verse 2. If there is found among you, so he's talking about the community of Israel, within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of Yahweh your God and transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven which I have forbidden, and it is told you. Now, this is interesting. I just want to draw your attention to this. Uh, here, the person not, is not even a direct observer. It's hearsay. I heard this happened. And it's told you, and you hear of it. What are you supposed to do? Then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates the man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness." The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So what is happening in Deuteronomy? God is saying, uh, if you hear of someone disobeying me and committing idolatry and gross sin, then uh, you need to deal with that. You need to deal with it not just on the basis of one witnesses, but two or three. And ultimately there is death from the community Uh, to do what? So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So on the one hand, in Leviticus, we've got this statement of you love your neighbors yourself, you go and correct them, you want to gain them, that you want that. But the other motivation in at least 
Israel is you purge the evil from your midst, and you need to do, have witnesses. Turn to Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 19, this is what Jesus is actually quoting from. Deuteronomy 19, 15 uh, through 21, listen to this. Slightly different. Yahweh your God will raise up, uh, sorry, that's 18, which is also a good passage, by the way. Uh, Deuteronomy 19, 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. That's the exact language that Jesus is talking about. If a malicious witness arises and accuses a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before Yahweh, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So why is Jesus quoting that, Deuteronomy 19, and you can see the similar links to Deuteronomy 17. He's saying, when you are doing this process in the community of disciples, it's the same principle. You've got a legal thing happening in God's eyes. You're bringing a charge, a serious charge against a brother or sister, so you need to make sure you don't just have that one-on-one interaction, but you need stage two two or three witnesses, so that a charge may be established. Now, notice what Jesus says. If he does not listen, take along with you one or two. So you got two or three total. Jesus does not say that the extra one or two actually witnessed the same sin. He doesn't say that. The picture is that you grab a couple other disciples from the community, and you go to this sinning brother And the prosecuting disciple lays out his case again. He lays it out before the three, before everyone there, so that they hear the case. Here's what I saw. Here's what happened. Here's the scriptures. Here's why this is sin. Repent, brother. Come back. And so the extra one or two are there to uh, are there to hear the case laid out, and also to hear the brothers, the sinning brothers' response. That is the goal. And the goal, that's the process, the goal is the same as it was in verse 15. The idea is to bring extra pressure on the sinning brother for the purpose of repentance. Because we got a straying sheep, God values straying sheep, and we're going to do what it takes to bring the sheep back for the good of the disciple and for the good of the community. But what happens if that doesn't work? What happens if that doesn't work? Verse 17, stage three. If he, so this is the sinning disciple, if he refuses to listen to them. So now we're not just not listening. This is like stubborn refusal. It's elevated. So now he's heard the case laid out against him a couple times, and he's, re- he's not listening, but now it's, he's refusing to listen. No. I've heard the case. I've heard what you brought against me. We've got two or three witnesses that are agreeing, uh, but I'm not going to repent. 
what, does you, what do you do? It says, say, uh, speak to the church or speak to the assembly. That word for church is the word ecclesia, and it means assembly, an assembly of people gathered together. And this links back with what Jesus says in Matthew 16, that uh, he is the one as the Messiah, as the ultimate temple builder. He says, I will build my assembly. And what he is saying, he said, he's talking about the new covenant assembly versus the old covenant assembly. And the new covenant assembly, he also describes as being built of stones like a temple, because that's what the ultimate Davidic king was supposed to do, is build a temple. Well, now what Jesus is going to build is going to build a temple assembly, which is to be identified with the church. There, in Matthew 16, he's talking about like his church like universal, the church that's going to be revealed ultimately at the end of time. Here, it's pretty clear based on the context that this is a local assembly, a local gathering as a manifestation of that universal assembly, that universal church that Jesus is speaking to. Do you know who's addressed with the word, say it to the church? The prosecuting disciple. It's not a plural command, it's an individual command. So the person still in charge of this whole process is the original prosecuting disciple who brought this up. He's brought along the one or two. Now this individual disciple is to go before the local assembly and say, okay, I've got to bring out the case again. Lay out the case. Here's what I saw. Here's what happened. Here's why this brother is in sin and he's not repenting. And so now what's happening? Now you've got not just two or three, but you've got the whole assembly of which the original sinning brother is evidently a part, uh, bringing pressure on that individual. For why? The goal is still repentance. This is a straying sheep. We know that our father loves straying sheep, and this person is not repenting. And so we are going after them. We want this person to repent. And so the idea is that maybe not the whole church, but individuals from the whole assembly are now more going after this brother. Repent, repent, come back. Don't keep going this way. It's going to lead to your destruction. Jesus said earlier in the, the Matthew 18, heaven and hell are at stake. This is serious business. That's stage Three, but again, with the same motivations and the same heart, with added pressure. Next stage, verse 17, what happens if he doesn't listen even then? And if even to the church he refuses to listen. So now you've got the assembly, the local assembly of the Messiah, all agreeing and saying, uh, you're in sin, you need to repent, and he refuses to listen to that, then what happens? Let him be to you. Now, the you there is singular. It's still addressing the original prosecuting disciple. Let him be to you, uh, original confronting disciple, as the foreigner and the tax collector. So first and foremost, the individual disciple who started the whole process is addressed here. And this has reached the final stage, stage four. 
and he's refused to listen to the whole assembly, the local church, and what happens? What are you supposed to do? The individual disciple who started the whole process is supposed to think of the brother, remember that's how this whole started, right? Uh, verse 15, if your brother, so the individual disciple starts by thinking of this person as a brother, but now that has to change. That has to change, and it changes right here. Let him be to you as the foreigner and the tax collector. Now, what does that mean? Let's take them one at a time. The foreigner is easier. The idea of a foreigner is just one who's outside of Israel. So you've got Israel in the land, um, and you're an Israelite, and uh, you know, just like we saw in Deuteronomy, there's certain procedures you're supposed to follow. But if you're outside of Israel, you're outside of the covenant community, you're a foreigner. So Gentiles, uh, you know, those who weren't Israelites, they're foreigners. They're outside. And that's the first thing that Jesus is saying. Now this person who was considered a brother, who was considered inside, now you've got to consider them as being an outsider, as not part of the covenant community. But what about the tax collector deal? What about the tax collector deal? Um, well, you, that's a little bit different because you have to understand, uh, it's interesting that a tax collector is writing this book, Matthew, and um, uh, what, Matthew was a Jew. Tax collectors were part of Israel. They weren't foreigners. They were part of Israel and yet they were associated, and you can see this in Matthew 9, you can see this laid out in Matthew 9, that tax collectors, they, they, they weren't so much, um, they were more like toll collectors. So they would sit at these uh, tax booths on trade routes, etc., and they would collect tax and toll. And they were known for lining their pockets. It was very easy to abuse the system. They were known for lining their po pockets, collecting more than they needed to, but they're part of the community. So these folks are known as, they're associated with gross sin. They're often associated with sinners and prostitutes. You can see that Matthew 9 and elsewhere in the Gospels. Um, and they're associated with thievery. And essentially, you could boil it down to this. They're known for taking advantage of their own people. They're known for taking advantage of their own people. They're traitors. And Jesus is saying, all right, you started with someone you thought was a brother, and you've gone through this whole process with the design of love, with the design of restoration, with the design of repentance, but if they refuse, even the church getting to that final stage, then they're an outsider and a traitor. They may have sat in the assembly, may have been there, they may have you know, looked like they were part of this, but they took advantage of you. They took advantage of the people. Now, you might say, well, wait, 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 Chris, Chris. Matthew 9, Jesus eats with sinners and tax collectors, and he has a positive relationship with even foreigners. Think of the centurion in Matthew 8, and also um, Matthew 8 or 9, and then the Canaanite woman. So, wait a minute. Uh, if you treat him as a foreigner or a tax collector, wouldn't Jesus eat with these people? The difference is those people that Jesus was interacting with, they were outside the discipleship community, and he was bringing them in. 
Here what is happening is you're dealing with someone who's inside the community and is showing they're not really his. And so effectively what Jesus is saying is if you're a good Jew in this time, you don't, um, you, you know, if you're a good Jew at this time, uh, you don't have dealings with foreigners, you don't have dealings with tax collectors, you don't eat with them, which is a key thing. You don't eat with a foreigner, you don't eat with a tax collector, you can see that in Matthew 9. You don't have, you don't have social intercourse with these people at all. And Jesus is saying, well, this person that was part of the community, and they've shown that they're really not. They're supposed to be a brother, they're supposed to be a disciple, and the process you've taken them through, you've pursued them, they're really not. And you need to treat them as such. They're an outsider, they're a traitor. Now, even here, even here, this is for the good of the individual. There's two things going on. One, the good of the individual. Uh, Essentially, you are exiling them from the community Uh, You're expelling them from the community, and the hope is that that expulsion, that exile, would bring them to their senses, so that if they would repent and listen and say, you're right, I was in sin, I want to repent, then they would be brought back in. So even this final expulsion, and you can see this in other church discipline passages, 1 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul is still hopeful even at this stage that, yeah, you have to expel them, but God's, Lord, Lord willing, God's going to work on their hearts to bring them back. But there's a second reason. There's that reason for restoration. That's a reason for repentance. That's what you want all along, out of love. But... If there's no repentance, then the second reason you do this thing is purity of the community. Because that is what Jesus is doing. Matthew 16, I will build my church. He is not merely saving individuals. He is saving a people, and that people has a part in displaying the glory of God and being a light to the world. It's a temple community. It's a community which, when it gathers, is supposed to display God's presence and reality to the world. And so you must, if you get to this stage, expel those who are persistent in their sin for the purity of the communities. You want the restoration of the individual, but if they won't, then it's for the purity of the community. Both. You shall purge the evil from your midst, as Deuteronomy would say. Now, how do we apply this? I mean, in some sense, it's direct application. It's one-to-one. This is what Jesus is telling us as disciples to do. But I think there's a few things we can meditate on. First, you need to participate. Now, all of you, look up. If you're not, look at me. You need, and you, 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 because that's what this passage is addressed to, individual disciples, you need to participate in correcting sin and fellow disciples in the local church. It's a group job. It's what Jesus is calling us to do. It's done out of love and desire for repentance. It's done out of concern for the holiness of Jesus' temple assembly. 
we don't like to confront, do we? We do not like to confront in this culture. On Facebook, it's fine, right? Like if you're sitting on the other end of the computer screen and you have anonymity, that's why it's easier on Facebook to say things you would never say to the person in person. It's, that's part of the downfall of social media, just saying. But you have anonymity and so you can blast the person, right? That's not biblical confrontation. Biblical confrontation is when you know that person and are known by them and you love them and it is a very uncomfortable thing to do, but why do you do it? Out of love for that person. You know, we, we, we don't like confrontation. Why don't we like confrontation? Because it makes me feel uncomfortable. But what does Proverbs say? Proverbs has some brilliant verses about this. I want to just read a couple of them to you. Proverbs 27. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Open rebuke, if it's done for the right reasons. You can do it for the wrong reasons, not that good. If you're doing it for the right reasons, it is a sign of love. Proverbs 28, 23. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. We're uncomfortable with uh, uh, confrontation because it makes us, us feel uncomfortable. Well, you know what that is? That's selfishness. You're unwilling to do the hard thing for the good of the other, which means as uncomfortable as it is, I'm not saying it's comfortable, you go to that person and say, brother or sister, I saw this, you are in sin, you need to repent. And you're doing that, why? Because the Father loves that straying disciple and wants to bring them back. And you are the instrument. You, it's, not, it's not just the leaders. It is everyone in the assembly has that responsibility as a disciple to confront an in, uh, a disciple. And, and we excuse it, right? Um, I don't want to be rude. I don't want to be unloving. I want to be nice. Don't fall into the trap of the culture of Christian nice. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. You want to be nice to that person, well, you're actually being selfish instead of confronting their sin for their good, not to elevate yourself, and for the good of the church. Really, the first step of church discipline, right, that first step, uh, go and confront one-on-one, that should be happening all the time. Meaning, you should have that confrontation, and there should be, if that person is a disciple, you're right, I need to repent, and it's done. Just one-on-one. No one else knows about it. Because why? We're helping each other to follow Jesus. We're helping each other to keep on the path that Jesus speaks about in this end of the Sermon on the Mount, the road to the narrow gate, that narrow road. Now, if that's true, if you, as a disciple and as a member, so what we're talking about here is we're talking about members of Faith Bible Church. This is why you're a member. You're saying, I'm in the boat, I'm willing to be confronted and go through the process of church discipline. You're not a member here and you show up. I can't, 
I can ask you to leave. I can get a restraining order, but I can't, I can't confront you like this. That's part of the reality of why we could become members of a local church. A local church is its membership to be accountable to one another, to help one another to grow and follow Jesus. So we're talking about membership here. Now, if every member's responsibility is to confront someone in sin, then you need to develop good biblical confrontation skills, don't you? There's a lot of ways to go wrong on this. You need to develop good biblical confrontation skills. You need to be able to identify genuine sin in yourself first, and then others be able to seek their rescue out of proper motives. you got to develop those skills, because if you go at it just willy-nilly, you're going to hurt someone, like mishandling a scalpel. you got to develop these skills, because it's your responsibility. Here's the other implication of that. You need to know and be intimately involved in the life of your brother or sister disciple. You need to know one another. That's part of why we do discipleship groups, is so we can break it down from a Sunday morning, so we can know one another, we can know what's going on in life, we can pray for one another, but also so that we can do things like this and say, you know, I hear you doing that. Can we talk about that? Um, and you need to know in order, know and be known in order to be able to do this. Sin likes to hide. It likes to be anonymous. It likes to not be engaged. You need to know and be intimately involved in the life of your brother and sister in the church. Now, I will say that after we're done with Matthew 18, we need to grow in some skills in this. We're going to take a week or two and just talk about how do you biblically confront someone in a good and healthy way. This is just a process, but how do you do it? How do you do it well? We're going to do that after we get through Matthew 18. Finally, there's the, there's the application for the confronting disciple, for the prosecuting disciple, but there's a flip side. If you're the person being confronted, being called out on your sin, well, you need to be in a place where someone can confront you and you will listen. Where you don't excuse. Where you don't say, ah, this is not a big deal. You laugh it off. You need to listen, because that person, ideally, according to what Jesus is saying, you has your good at heart, and they're trying to rescue you. You need to be in a place where you can be confronted, and you're willing to listen. I would ask that for myself. You see me going astray, you see me in sin, then you need to confront me. You need to tell me, because that's an act of love, and we all need to be in that spot. And we need to not get defensive. We need to be willing. And we need to welcome it, to ask, if I go astray, will you confront me, please? Because I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to be ensnared in my sin. I don't want to go whole-bodied into hell uh, rather than chopping off my eye or my arm. That's what confrontation feels like, doesn't it, a lot of times. Heaven and hell are at stake you need to be in a place where someone can confront you and you will listen and you will heed what they say. It's tough. Christianity is not easy. We're following Jesus and Jesus cares and he loves and he's willing to do hard stuff to make sure his sheep are following him. 
correct with the right process. Let's pray. Jesus, your love is not ushigushi, it is good. It is firm when it needs to be. It is tender when it needs to be. Lord, it is hard. We are sinful people. We are selfish people. We don't like to, we like people to think well of us. We don't like to confront one another. Lord, help us to be driven by love, your love for one another such that we are willing to confront on sin because sin will destroy us. But you, Jesus, you are the great rescuer. You bled and died for a sinful people that you might, even as you said, forgive every sin and blasphemy. Thank you that you welcome such repentance, that you, the goal in all this is to draw a strong sinner back. Lord, help us to do this faithfully, gently, in a way that would honor and please you. Lord, I pray that you would, even as with these ideas in mind, you would prepare us to take your supper, your meal, Lord, and to value it because of what it means, what it means as far as you dying to purchase individuals and a people for yourself. Lord Jesus, we love you. Help us, um, help us to clearly see the gospel. Thank you for forgiveness of sin. Thank you for the righteousness that's in you. Help us to walk in the way that you want us to. In Christ's name, amen.